Hi everyone, and welcome to the second session in the Chamber of Secrets season of Dear Mr. Potter. In this session, we're going to be discussing chapters four and five that will carry us from the burrow to Nocturne and Diagon Alley. We'll be back at the burrow again, and then all the way to Hogwarts via a flying Ford Anglia. I'm Alistair Stevens. Everything seems to be working. Hopefully we can avoid the technical difficulties which so besieged us last week. I see you all here in the chat. As ever, you can contribute to the ongoing conversation either in the YouTube chat if you're here live or on Twitter using the hashtag Swadomp. That's S-W-D-M-P, Storywonk, Dear Mr. Potter. That's how the whole thing works. I can see all of your messages here. Chrissy is here, though it is 4 a.m. in her part of Australia. That takes dedication. We have Mary here, who is currently laboring under a hurricane. That's impressive too, my goodness. We have Maya and Christine and Sue and Darcy and Margaret and everyone is here. Guys, so good to see you all here. I'm so glad that you could take the time to join us here in this unusual afternoon seminar session. It is 2 p.m. here on the East Coast of the United States, here specifically in upstate New York. I don't get to do a lot of daytime seminar sessions, but I'm glad that I get to do one today. Next week, I'll just say right at the top, next week we're going to be back at our usual 9 p.m. slot. So if you were one of those people who was listening to this via podcast because you can't make it here during working hours, rest easy. Next week you'll be able to make it. You'll be right here with us. Sarah's here and Liz is here. Guys, so good to have you. 2 p.m. in Boston too, Kate tells me. 11 a.m. in California. I try and mix it up so that we can we can get some people. I know that we have some people with us from the UK where it is still almost a reasonable hour. I have taken, uh, taken part in my share of live tweets and live discussions on the internet, which start at 7 or 8 or 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and that can make for a late night when you're still in the UK. So I'm glad that you are all here. 4 a.m. Saturday morning in Melbourne, Australia, so Christine tells me. <laughs> 9 p.m. in Israel. My goodness. Guys, thank you so much for finding the time to come and hang out with me today. So as I said, chapters four and five today, and this is going to be in some ways a frustrating conversation because we are going to be feeling consistently throughout these two chapters that the book is on the very precipice, that it is almost ready to really get started, but it's not going to. Arguably, the book isn't going to get started until the very end of next week's reading, right at the end of chapter, what is that, six, seven, eight, I guess, the very end of chapter eight that we'll be looking at next week, right after uh, Nearly Headless Nick's party. That's a long way into the book. Now, that's not entirely fair. We have had some inciting incidents already. We have established some lines of conflict, and we have certainly built up a great deal of exposition. We have, pretty much by the time we finish this reading, all of the necessary exposition that will carry us to the very end of the book, with one minor exception. That's an unconventional structure, but it is a structure which is absolutely reminiscent of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. If you go back and look at the first book, and then compare its opening chapters to the opening chapters of Chamber of Secrets, you're going to see a lot of repetition. But that repetition isn't, isn't weak, it isn't simply imitative. It's something far more important, as I mentioned in last week's seminar series. You don't just have to look at the shape of the thing, you have to look at the direction it's facing. You have to look at the purpose that it serves within the framework of the text. We're going to look at that specifically this week as we look at Nocturne Alley, which is a huge addition to our understanding of the wizarding world. We're going to be looking at the Malfoys. We're going to be looking at Gilderoy Lockhart. He makes his first appearance this week. We're going to be looking at questions of fame and identity. So while these chapters are perhaps 
a little frustrating, as I said. While perhaps we are eager to get to Hogwarts and to get this story really moving, these chapters are, in their way, important. This is an important world-building exercise, and I think that they benefit from a close textual reading and a close juxtaposition with the opening chapters of the first book, too. It's really interesting to see, for example, to pick one thing at, at random, look at the treatment of Hagrid in these opening chapters. He shows up, he rescues Harry from Nocturne Alley, he leads him back to safety, and then he disappears again. When you consider how important, how pivotal Hagrid was to the, the opening movement of the Philosopher's Stone, we're clearly doing something very different here. We're, we're repositioning Harry. We're taking him away from this solitary lifeboat of Hagrid, and we're actually integrating him into a community, into a family, both, both nuclear and extended. It's a fascinating movement for a character as still simple as Harry Potter. So we're going to talk a little about the structure of, of these chapters, and we're going to talk a little too about Harry as a protagonist, because one of the things that can make these chapters feel a little weak, make them feel a little slow, make them feel certainly a little inessential, is that Harry is essentially reactive. That's true, of course, of the entire beginning of the book. He bounces from the Dursleys to Dobby to imprisonment to the Burrow to Diagon Alley. Ultimately, he arrives at Hogwarts, but he does it all without having a real active, personal, specific goal. He is reactive far more than he is active. Again, something that we saw in the first book in the series. Harry's actual role, though, is a little more a little more elusive than that. One of the reasons that we draw the contrasts that we draw between Chamber of Secrets and the Philosopher's Stone is to illustrate Harry's nascent maturity. He is 12 years old now. He was 11 years old last year. He's growing. He's changing. And we get to see that in some very specific and very unexpected ways, because we don't generally get the, well, Harry's almost a teenager now, and you know what that means. We get instead something much more thoughtful. We get instead something that is much more socially aware than that beat might be expected to be. I'm thinking in particular of um, of the issue of money that we address only tangentially as we move through these chapters. The Weasleys are poor. That, in a sense, is one of the defining traits of what it is to be a Weasley. This large and ramshackle family, funded by public service with the Ministry of Magic, they, they struggle. And Harry is now mature enough, adult enough, to be self-conscious of the disparity in wealth. When we go to Gringotts in tonight's reading, we're going to see him feel uncomfortable about the small fortune that he has in his vault and the swept bare emptiness of the Weasley family vault. Harry is not, though, adult enough to recognize that there is something that he can do about that disparity. An adult, I, when I'm reading this book, feel an overwhelming obligation to take some of that money, some of that small fortune that Harry has inherited, and give it to the Weasleys, to pay them rent for the six weeks that I stayed at the burrow, to, to express somehow financially some, some, some compensation, to, to share some of my good fortune with those who, despite wonderful intentions, are a little less economically fortunate. Harry is not an adult. A 12-year-old isn't governed by those same rules. There is still an uncrossable gulf between Harry and Molly and Arthur Weasley. He's still a kid. They're still parents. And he is not ready yet to, to cross that unfathomable 
abyss. So he doesn't feel the obligation to to give money to the Weasleys, and they presumably would be offended if he even tried, but but it's not about the response, it's about the, the sense of obligation in the first place. He doesn't feel that obligation. Instead, though he is self-aware enough to be a little uncomfortable about his relative wealth, he takes action in a way that is appropriate to a 12-year-old boy who has money in his pocket. He treats his friends to outrageous snacks. Which ties us back once again to his adventures on the Hogwarts Express in the first book. All of that is to say that, yes, it is true and it is fair to say that Harry is a reactive protagonist, that he doesn't take control of this story in the way that we might wish a protagonist would. But in part, that's because he's still a child. Though the book bears his name, he's not oftentimes driving the action. Children oftentimes don't drive the action. Instead, we see this network of... of hierarchies of authority, whether that is the Dursleys or the Weasleys, we get a sense of that with the Malfoys when we end up in Nocturne Alley, and then by the end of this reading, when we end up in Hogwarts primarily, we see there the the codified hierarchical, hierarchical power structure, excuse me, the codified hierarchical power structure between the students and Snape and McGonagall and Dumbledore. For Harry and for Ron and for Hermione and for children in this kind of culture, having this kind of experience, the, the rules of society are not yours to break. There are actual rules, there are school rules, and there are rules that are put in place by, by those who seek to dominate us, by those who seek to control us, by those who seek to corral us. And we can break those because that is a child's prerogative taking a flying Ford Anglia to Hogwarts, for example, would be, <laughs> would be breaking the rules, but doing so in, a, in, a, in an active kind of way that, that, that creates new opportunity for growth. But taking responsibility for adult situations, taking responsibility for adult circumstances, for things which are outside of your world, we don't expect that of children. We don't expect that of Harry. We will, ultimately, by the time we get to the end of this series, we will expect that, but not yet. All of that is to say that we're introducing in these chapters new subtleties, new reflections, new symmetries within our understanding of Harry Potter's world. And when I say Harry Potter's world, I don't just mean that by now familiar contrast between the muggle world and the wizarding world. We're drawing some subtleties here. The whole introduction of Nocturne Alley means something very significant for our understanding of, of wizard culture. It doesn't quite seem to be communicated to Harry yet, but we'll get to that in due course too. So even as we retread some of the scenes and some of the experiences and certainly some of the settings that we had in the first book, we are complicating things. We are adding more conflict and more contrast, and that's not just J.K. Rowling's ever-improving, ever-increasing world-building. That's a conscious development of Harry's personality. That's the difference between a 12-year-old and an 11-year-old. And we'll be able to continue to track that transformation, track that, that growth and evolution as we move through the third and fourth and fifth books. And of course, the subsequent books after that. So let me see here. Let me catch up. Perspicuous Enigma on Twitter, which is perhaps the best Twitter name, says, I love that Harry is more reactive. It's more realistic because he's just trying to fit into the world, but then stuff happens. Yeah. 
Usagi says, Harry also never had money of his own with the Dursleys, so I would expect he doesn't really know what to do in the big picture. That's specifically true. I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's more generally true, too. When kids are given an allowance, that's not money in the real sense. As you mature, one of the things that, that you realize, and, and this can happen to you in high school, it can happen to you in college, it can happen to you in your 30s. I mean, life experience varies, obviously. But eventually, hopefully, you learn that money is is a tool. It's not just... It's not a token that can be exchanged for gratification in some way, that can be exchanged for candy or a new video game or, or you know, a, a transformer. To look back at my own personal childhood, of course. It's not just a token that can be exchanged for entertainment or for, for gratification. It is something else. It is something more that there are economic considerations to even the most personal and intimate of relationships. You know, family relationships can be, are inevitably about money. Marriages are, in a sense, about money. That's not to say that they're just about money, of course, but money is important. And not in the sense of, of disparity, but in the sense of, of economic fluidity. We have to be able to survive. We have to be able to pay the bills. It is naive to believe that true love can always find a way, can always manufacture something out of nothing. That is effectively a romantic, yes, uh, an admirable, yes, but an immature perspective on the world. An adult understands that you still have to pay your mortgage, that you still have to feed your kids, that you still have to repair the car, that you still have to take care of these things. And that's not diminished. That's not less noble or grand or worthy than spending all your, your, your allowance on candy or on popcorn or whatever. That's just the way that the adult world functions. And Harry is right now caught between those two things. So I think it's absolutely true on the one hand to say that, yes, he hasn't, as he says explicitly in this reading, he hasn't had money. The Dursleys just haven't given him pocket money. But also in that broader sense, he doesn't understand the connections between, you know, having money and not having money and having obligations and, and being free to relieve the burdens of others. That will come for Harry later. Let's see what else we have here. Oh, yes, and Kate says he does give all those books to Ginny. She's the only one who wouldn't refuse. That is absolutely true. This is a uh, this is a response to Liz. Liz says, oh, but Molly wouldn't take rent from Harry. She gives freely. It's how she loves. Absolutely. That is completely true. I have no doubt at all that Molly and Arthur would be positively askance if Harry actually offered them money. But at the same time, he doesn't apparently textually feel the obligation that I think we would all feel, adults that we all are. The, the, the obligation that we would feel in that circumstance. It is absolutely true that he gives the books to Ginny, though that is at least in part a function of plot, which I'll discuss later, and is, too, a response to Gilderoy Lockhart. It's almost as though Harry doesn't want to be... Hmm, doesn't want to feel the obligation of, of a direct gift from Gilderoy Lockhart, that if he buys his own books and gives these gifted copies to Ginny, that he is somehow liberated from obligation. To, to Gilderoy. Let's see. <laughs> wow, we have so many people here today. Guys, thank you all so much for coming out. I'm amazed that I have so many people here with me uh, at two o'clock on, on a Friday afternoon. And I have to scroll back here. Sarah Cade says, it took me a million years to realize Nocturne Alley equals nocturnally, similar with Diagon Alley, diagonally. Yes, though nocturnally is a little more metaphorically apt, a little more thematically precise than, than Diagon Alley is. I'm not sure 
I'm not sure that I like the naming convention of Nocturne Alley. It is clever, though. I, I will give it that. We'll, we'll talk more about Nocturne Alley and what it means as we move on into our reading. All right, let's get to it. Oh, I should say, too, before we actually start the reading, I'm going to do something that I haven't done before in a seminar setting at the end of this session. I mentioned last week that I have a theory. I have a theory about the underlying structure of this book. I have a theory that explains some inexplicable things about Lucius Malfoy, about a certain diary, and about Dobby the house elf. I think what I'm going to do, if I have time right at the end of today's session, I'm going to bid farewell to those of you who are as yet unspoiled. Those of you who haven't yet finished the book, I don't think we're going to spoil too much about the subsequent books in the series, but I know that there are some of you here today who haven't yet read all of Chamber of Secrets and you want to remain unspoiled. So just in that last 10 minutes, I think I'll, I'll, I'll pull a curtain and say, look, you guys who haven't read the book, who don't want to be spoiled, you should leave now. And then I think I'm going to talk a little about my theory about the underlying structure of this book, because it's something that I want to have an awareness of as we move forward. It's something that I want to have in the periphery, because it's going to give us potentially at least another perspective. And if you don't think that it does give us a perspective, if you don't think that it is actually true, I would love to hear from you too. We'll talk about that at the end of the session. Let's begin then, as I catch up and make sure that I haven't missed anything Terribly significant as yet. Oh, I should say too, one final bit of, of, of preparatory material here. I have actually set up the forum spaces that I promised to set up last week over on the StoryWonk forum, forum.storywonk.com. There is a Chamber of Secrets spoiler thread where you can go to discuss this book and all of the other books up to and including the new one. We can talk freely about the entire series in that space and talk about the ways that Chamber of Secrets is improved, I think, when we look back on it from the perspective of someone who has read the entire series. That's been a very common thread in, in a lot of the correspondence that I've received about Chamber of Secrets this week. I didn't think much of it the first time I read it, but then I read the sixth book or the seventh book. I came back and read Chamber of Secrets and I liked it much more. I think that's, that's a common response uh, to this book. So there is a spoiler-filled thread over there on the StoryWonk forum, and there will also be new threads appearing accompanying each of these seminar sessions. So you can head over there, forum.storywonk.com, to discuss all of the content, in case I've missed something that you've been discussing here. All right. Sue is such a newbie. There we are. Good, good, good. Yeah, if we can restrain ourselves, as I said last week, I don't want to police spoilers too powerfully, particularly during the live sessions, because honestly, there's a lot of material about Harry Potter that has just been osmotically absorbed by the culture, that, that by being a person who watches television or who reads books or who, who uses the internet, we know certain things about Harry Potter, but I don't want to... I don't want to, in part, defocus our attention on Chamber of Secrets by talking about later books in the series, by talking about particular events. I don't want to use those tools and structures and frames as a means of reinterpreting this text from a, a reflexive position. I want to look at Chamber of Secrets as it unfolds and, and look, to, look to what we can understand from the text itself as we, as we move through it. All right, let's get started here we are, 20 minutes in. It is time for our first slide. Let me share this with you here as we begin at the burrow. Life at the burrow was as different as possible from life on Privet Drive. The Dursleys liked everything neat and ordered. The Weasley's house burst with the strange and unexpected. Harry got a shock the first time he looked in the mirror over the kitchen mantelpiece and it shouted, Tuck your shirt in, Scruffy! 
The ghoul in the attic howled and dropped pipes whenever he felt things were getting too quiet, and small explosions from Fred and George's bedroom were considered perfectly normal. What Harry found most unusual about life at Ron's, however, wasn't the talking mirror or the clanking ghoul. It was the fact that everybody there seemed to like him. Mrs. Weasley fussed over the state of his socks and tried to force him to eat fourth helpings at every meal. Mr. Weasley liked Harry to sit next to him at the dinner table so that he could bombard him with questions about life with muggles, asking him to explain how things like plugs and the postal service worked. Fascinating, he would say as Harry talked him through using a telephone. Ingenious, really, how many ways muggles have found of getting around, getting along without magic. I love that the primary distinction between the Dursleys and the Weasleys is that they like Harry. That is, of course, from a 12-year-old perspective, an enormously important and powerful thing. That is more important than their muggle-slash-magical conflict, or their acutely self-aware versus oblivious conflict. The Weasleys are happy and content to be the Weasleys, while life on Privet Drive is bounded by the expectations of others. It's not just that the Dursleys want to be normal, though that is certainly true, they want to be seen as normal. The Weasleys don't care. We also have, of course, as we discussed last week, that tension between the middle class and the working class, the, the suburban and the rural, the carefully ordered and the anarchic. Life in the borough is pretty much what we would expect it to be. And I think we can all be pretty comfortable that we would prefer life in the borough to life on Privet Drive. One of the things I find interesting about this sequence, one of the things that I find interesting about this ongoing relationship through the books and through the series as a whole, is Arthur Weasley's fascination with the Muggle world. And we may be reminded of Ron's initial interest in the Muggle world back on the Hogwarts Express in the first book. This is apparently an inherited trait. Arthur Weasley is interested in the Muggle world in much the same way as Harry himself has been fascinated by the wizarding world. And Arthur is separated from the Muggle world in much the same way as Harry was separated from the wizarding world. I love, too, this idea that technology exists as a created alternative to magic. Well, since we don't have magic, we might as well create things that can accomplish the same ends. And that tells us potentially something fascinating about the deep world building that underpins Harry Potter's world. Ingenious, really, says Arthur, how many ways muggles have found of getting along without magic. Which suggests that wizarding culture predates non-wizarding culture, that it predates modern muggle culture. It may be that the wizarding world's preoccupation with medievalism, which we've discussed before, isn't just an affectation, and it isn't something that is deliberately, consciously, thematically significant. This isn't a rejection of the modern world. This is simply a continuation of a much older culture, a much older tradition. And of course, here, let me cancel that, uh, let me cancel that slide. Of course, here too, we see Harry being treated as an individual. He's being treated as a person. Now, we're going to talk about that as we continue to move through this reading, but we can already juxtapose that experience with Harry's experience with the Dursleys, because the Dursleys' response to Harry is not actually personal. They don't have a direct enmity for Harry as an individual. 
they dislike what he represents. They distrust what he represents. They are fearful of what he's capable of. But it's not Harry's innate personality that has earned their, their scorn and their derision and their oftentimes aggression. Here, though, in The Burrow, it is Harry's personality that earns him a spot right next to Mr. Weasley. It's in part, of course, his experience with the Muggle world. That's clear. That's textual. But it's also clear and textual that the Weasleys like him personally. We're going to talk about Harry's hmm, personal identity, about who Harry actually is and the conflict between that identity and other versions of Harry's identity as we move through the reading. But it's interesting that already we've kind of... We've landed in the one place where Harry is genuinely appreciated for who he is. That is pretty much not going to be true for the rest of the book. By the time we get to Hogwarts, Harry Potter is... is something else. Is at least... is at least not exclusively himself. Obviously, we'll talk about those other identities and those other uh, senses of who Harry is as we move forward. Kate Bennett says, not that wizard culture predates muggle culture, but that it predates modern technology and conveniences. Yes, certainly, Kate. That, that's that's, the, uh, that's the, the, the crux of that idea that I was heading toward. You're absolutely right. And Asagi says, it does explain things like cauldrons, broomsticks, and robes in the wizarding world. It certainly does. I think it's clear that, that when we talk about muggle culture and we talk about its sense of innovation, we're talking about, if not modern technology, then at least industrial age creations. We're talking about the postal service and telephones. We're talking about the modern world. And I find it interesting that Arthur Weasley's perspective on that, which I think is genuinely supposed to be little more than a joke. Hey, isn't it funny that, that they go to these extraordinary lengths to accomplish these things that, that magic could accomplish with a snap of the fingers and a whispered word? I think it's interesting that that actually reveals more about the relationship between these two sides of, of you know, uniquely British culture, I guess, uh, in these first few books. These two sides of uniquely British culture are anchored in a much more personal way. They, they stemmed, it would seem, from a similar origin point. And we're going to kind of tangentially approach that too later in the book when we're looking back at the founding of Hogwarts. We're looking back at Hogwarts, it's, it's creation myth, if you like. We're going to be looking, of course, at the founding of the Chamber of Secrets, and we're going to be looking at the, the, the four founders of the four schools of Hogwarts. And that gives us a sense, too, of a wizarding culture that is stagnant, I mean, is, is a provocative word, and there's certainly no sense in this book that is in part preoccupied with the conflict between the older aristocratic powers and the modern bureaucratic powers. There's no real sense that, that, that wizard culture has been stagnant, and yet there's been almost no change for the better part of a thousand years. And now, now, coincidentally, we're on the cusp of great and significant change. There's a lot to unpick there. Unfortunately, we never really get a, a terribly satisfying exploration of, of the history of wizard culture. We're generally pretty, uh, pretty casual with the, the inclusion of dates of great antiquity, so we'll look more at that whenever we get the opportunity, but we're never really going to get that much depth offered. All right, let me see here. Oh, Kate says, Petunia, like a certain professor, dislikes Harry because of their feelings for his mother. Yes, yes. Um, Lily Potter, of course, a continual presence even when she is conspicuous in her absence. Yeah. Let me see here. Um, 
<laughs> I'm trying to track back to the beginning of these threads so that I can, I can keep up. Uh, Jennifer says, I feel like computers aren't really a thing in the Harry Potter muggle world at all. Yes, Dudley does indeed, as Emma, as Emma clarifies. Dudley does, in fact, have a computer. One of the first beats in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is Harry wishing that the Dursleys would leave without him so that he can stay home and have a go on, on Dudley's computer. The muggle world as it's presented to us is a oddly British suburban kind of muggle world. It is a... a a, you know, outskirts of London kind of, of suburban world, but it is at least broadly technologically consistent with, with what we know of the early 1990s. So, yes. Oh, when Arthur discovers the internet? I just scrolled right past that comment. Malix says, what I would give to see Arthur discover the internet. Wow, that would be... I can only imagine the trouble that he would get up to. Looking at what he does to the poor, innocent Fort Anglia. I can only imagine what he would get up to with the entire internet at his disposal. So, after this scene at the borough, this establishing scene, as we move into, I guess, really the second arc of Harry's experience in this novel, we get the letter from Hermione. Everyone decides to go to Diagon Alley on Saturday to pick up school supplies. Harry has trouble with flu powder and ends up transported not to Diagon Alley, but rather to Nocturne Alley, specifically to Borgen and Burke's a store dedicated to the dark arts. Harry looked quickly around and spotted a large black cabinet to his left. He shot inside it and pulled the doors closed, leaving a small crack to peer through. Seconds later, a bell clanged and Malfoy stepped into the shop. The man who followed could only be Draco's father. He had the same pale, pointed face and identical cold grey eyes. Mr. Malfoy crossed the shop, looking lazily at the items on display, and rang a bell on the counter before turning to his son and saying, Touch nothing, Draco. Malfoy, who had... Excuse me. Malfoy, who had reached for the glass eye, said, I thought you were going to buy me a present. I said I would buy you a racing broom, said his father, drumming his fingers on the counter. What's the good of that if I'm not on the house team? said Malfoy, looking sulky and bad-tempered. Harry Potter got a Nimbus 2000 last year, special permission from Dumbledore so that he could play for Gryffindor. He's not even that good. It's just because he's famous. Famous for having a stupid scar on his forehead. Malfoy bent down to examine a shelf full of skulls. Everyone thinks he's so smart, a wonderful potter with his scar and his broomstick. You have told me this at least a dozen times already, said Mr. Malfoy with a quelling look at his son, and I would remind you that it is not prudent to appear less than fond of Harry Potter, not when most of our kind regard him as the hero who made the Dark Lord disappear. Ah, Mr. Borgin. We're going to talk a little more about the Malfoys, father and son, in just a second. I want to focus primarily here, though, on Harry's fame. He's not even that good, says Draco Malfoy, apparently incorrectly, since Harry was previously heralded as the greatest seeker in, in Gryffindor history. He's not even that good. It's just because he's famous. Famous for having a stupid scar on his forehead. He's smart, wonderful Potter with his scar and his broomstick. Clearly, Draco is speaking from great jealousy. He had the house cup torn out of his fingertips at the very end of the last book, and he clearly has a grudge to bear. But it's interesting that he targets Harry's fame, and it's interesting that he connects Harry's fame to the scar on Harry's forehead. When we were discussing the first book, there was some speculation about that scar, and about Harry's fame. 
Lord Voldemort kills Harry's parents, tries to kill Harry himself, and fails. Harry is then taken by Hagrid directly to number four Privet Drive, where he is delivered into the care of the Dursleys. The only people who see him during that entire exchange are Hagrid and Dumbledore and Minerva McGonagall. Who then spreads the tale of Harry's scar? How does that become not just an important part of Harry's public identity, a part of his celebrity, of his fame, but the definitive part of his celebrity? That is how he is most readily recognized. Where did that story come from? Did Dumbledore spread it? Did it just become a part of myth? Was it reported as Harry grew older? Was he perhaps more readily and consistently observed by members of the wizarding fraternity than we, we realize from the, the pages of the first book? What is the key to understanding Harry's fame? And why should... Draco Malfoy, who has apparently been given everything in his life, been given every advantage, and, and really has no problem with being given things, why should he chafe at the thought of Harry's fame and Harry's popularity being undeserved, being, being grounded in that fame, in that celebrity, rather than being the product of what? What, what kind of virtues would Draco Malfoy hold to be worthy? Would he be more impressed with Harry Potter if Harry were scheming and Machiavellian? Possibly. It certainly seems likely from the beginning of the first book that he would have been more impressed with Harry Potter if Harry Potter had simply been Slytherin. Though I think even then there would have been a contest between the two. Let's push on to the next slide. As I said, we're going to pick up with, with Lucius and Draco immediately because Lucius Malfoy has some poisons to sell. I'm not buying today, Mr. Borgen, but selling, said Mr. Malfoy. Selling? The smile faded slightly from Mr. Borgen's face. You have heard, of course, that the Ministry is conducting more raids, said Mr. Malfoy, taking a roll of parchment from his inside pocket and unraveling it for Mr. Borgen to read. I have a few uh, items at home that might embarrass me if the Ministry were to call. Mr. Borgen fixed a pair of pince-nez to his nose and looked down at the list. The Ministry wouldn't presume to trouble you, sir, surely? Mr. Malfoy's lip curled. I have not been visited yet. The name Malfoy still commands a certain respect. Yet the Ministry grows ever more meddlesome. There are rumours about a new Muggle Protection Act. No doubt that flea-bidden Muggle-loving fool Arthur Weasley is behind it. Harry felt a hot surge of anger. And as you see, certain of these poisons might make it appear... I understand, sir, of course, said Mr. Borgen. Let me see. We see here the repetition of one of the foundational conflicts that we'll see throughout the book. I addressed last week the ways in which social class is represented and explored and placed into conflict in the frame of this book. Here we see a fine example of that. Mr. Borgen, a professional, treats Mr. Malfoy with a great deal of deference until his back is turned. <laughs> he treats him with nothing but an obsequious kind of respect until his back is turned. Now, clearly, partly that's because this is a financial transaction, partly because he wants to take Lucius Malfoy for all that he can, but also these ideas of class and hierarchy are encoded in everyday social interactions. As Lucius Malfoy says, the name Malfoy still commands a certain respect, 
but the ministry grows ever more meddlesome. Now, the ministry is a governmental department. Quasi-governmental, perhaps, but governmental nonetheless. They're not meddlesome. The Malfoys do not have an innate right to rule themselves. That is not how contemporary society works. They are still a part of a greater culture, a greater society. We're seeing here exactly that tension that I referred to earlier, the tension between Lucius Malfoy on the one hand as a representative of the aristocratic ideal, and Arthur Weasley on the other, a representative of a well-intentioned bureaucratic ideal. That is a core conflict throughout this entire story, because that is going to be reflected between between wizards and, and mudbloods, wizards and, and muggle-born wizards. We're going to see that play out powerfully. We also have this sense of, of class division, of financial disparity. It is a recurring element to the conflict between the Malfoys and the Weasleys, that the Weasleys are poor and the Malfoys are unconscionably wealthy. That brings us to our discussion of Nocturne Alley. As a dark reflection of Diagon Alley, yes, let me cancel that slide. As a dark reflection of Diagon Alley, yes, but also as, as a part of the greater wizarding world. There is no sense, little sense, let me clarify that, there is little sense in the first book of an established community, an established culture of dark magic. Lord Voldemort is held apart as a representative of something rare and fantastically dangerous. But that clearly can't be true. That clearly can't be true in a world in which there is economic viability for Nocturne Alley and the businesses therein. And it is said explicitly in the text that Nocturne Alley is stuffed full of businesses serving those who practice the dark arts. This is immediately a more complicated world. This is immediately a more challenging and combative world, much more like the Muggle world than we had previously been led to believe. Nocturne Alley represents, in a sense, the division between those who have power and those who don't. It represents that almost class-based conflict, but it's another perspective on that same conflict. Let's see here. There's so much, so many comments passing here that I'm not having time to read because I'm busy at lecturing. I know, Kat just called me out. Uh, mudbloods, I know, I don't like using that word either. Yes, it, it tripped its way to the front of my tongue because I was thinking about the ways in which, the ways in which that conflict is represented. Um, it, is, it is a genuinely unpleasant word. It is, it, it's actually striking how genuinely unpleasant that discrimination and prejudice is. And it's striking how barbed and how outright vicious the the representation of a a fictional kind of prejudice is within the pages of of the Harry Potter series as a whole but certainly within the pages of this novel where, where it it comes to prominence we had some relatively by the standards of this book we had some relatively harmless prejudice represented in the first book it was it was distasteful yes but it was also it was also harmless. It was also the kind of, of bullying and prejudice that, that we might expect from a high school environment, particularly the early years of a high school environment. Nothing terribly admirable, but also nothing terribly troubling. Here, though, we see that increase. We see that, that sharpen. It, it comes to a 
a genuinely bitter point as we move through this book. And it's represented early. We, we get glimpses of that from the Malfoys before we even get to Hogwarts, before the Chamber of Secrets is even an open consideration. So I, I absolutely respect this book's treatment of prejudice. I, I respect this book's treatment of, of that kind of pervasive and actively sustained vitriol and inequality. There is a real commentary within the pages of this book on social injustice, and that's, I mean, astonishing. It's it's absolutely admirable that that J.K. Rowling played this element as straight as she played it. And we can talk about you know the the quaint Britishism of of class conflict in general. There is something faintly absurd about Lucius Malfoy and Arthur Weasley fighting in a bookstore. That is a ridiculous idea, but it is a ridiculous idea that J.K. Rowling plays absolutely straight. She commits to the underlying preconceptions and prejudices that fuel that kind of conflict on an ongoing basis. That is a real conflict, albeit one which is presented in the most fantastical of terms. So I apologize for, for using that slur. I shall endeavor not to use it again. It is... Well, we're going to actually talk in just a few minutes about, uh, about Rowling's ability to create fantastical language that is enormously evocative, enormously communicative, almost, almost unnecessarily so. And I think that that is one particular term that is, that is just gross. Yes. Let me see. Nathan says, I love the environment of Nocturne Alley as a counterpoint to Diagon Alley. It reminds me of nothing so much as the contrast of the high street and the historic closes in Edinburgh. Nathan, that is, that is a genuinely tremendous pull. Um, I had never made that connection. It is of course entirely appropriate that J.K. Rowling should have situated, should have situated these these particularly you know wizard oriented spaces in Edinburgh. That she should have summoned forth some of that sense. Edinburgh is a fascinating place. If you've if you've never been there, it is a fascinating contrast between the specific and well ordered new city and this this riotous collapse of the old city. There are such strong and direct juxtapositions within the the actual physical framework of the city of Edinburgh that it's it's very tough having having had that thought brought to my attention now not to see it in exactly those terms that that's a really great observation yeah yes uh josephine says hermione does call herself a mudblood in the last book she does there's something of a retcon there um the word is is has taken on a greater meaning i think and and you know what there's also the sense of appropriation Hermione can use it because she is one. That's a less loaded term than, than when it's put in the mouth of Draco Malfoy. Certainly, too, we do scale up that conflict here. And that, again, part retcon? Possibly. Possibly, this is J.K. Rowling improving her world-building and narrative skills. Partly, though, it's also reflective of the greater maturity that we see from her core cast. As you become older, you realize that the world is more comfortable and more sharp-edged and more dangerous and darker in certain respects than it seemed to be. It seemed to be as you were a child. Yeah, good. All right, let me push on. Oh, one final thought though from Maya, who just said in the YouTube chat, how much do we lose in translation by being American and not knowing the UK and its class culture? Honestly, I don't think that much, Maya, because I think that, that 
Rowling manages to take these traditional class structures and absolutely embody them. You don't necessarily have to know about the tension between the aristocratic and bureaucratic approaches to, to social order, the aristocratic and the bureaucratic classes, we might say, or the response, uh, the relationship between the aristocratic classes, the, uh, the working classes, and the middle classes, because we get embodied representations of those things, whether that's the Malfoys or the Weasleys or the Dursleys. We get a representation of, of that abstracted hierarchical conflict, and thus we can understand the direct relationships, even if the broader social template is is incomplete or absent entirely. I think that Rowling actually does a very a very um, capable job of, of embodying that conflict and giving us a sense of, of the underlying motivations that are present there. I do think it is enriched by an understanding of British culture, particularly British culture in the, the late 1980s, early 1990s. As Rowling was writing these books, British culture was it may be said, I think, uh, more fractured, more more riven. This was an era of, of long-standing conservative government. This was an era of, of enormous disparity, economic disparity, uh, social disparity, disparities in, in opportunity and in education. Britain was, was absolutely riven by class divides during that period, throughout that period. And I think that, that Rowling is absolutely drawing upon that. But as I said, embodying it so much and, and so carefully and so thoughtfully that even if you're unaware of the specifics of British culture at the time, if for some reason you're not an expert on, on early 90s British culture, then you can still get a handle on the underlying conflicts and particularly those underlying conflicts as they relate to Harry. So it works for those of us who are unfamiliar with British culture. It also works, of course, for children who don't have that perspective. This is still a book which is which is open to the juvenile reader. And that is an absolute strength. I think it would be very easy for this book, for these books, to leave their core audience behind. Or to begin to patronize that core, that, that core audience, to talk down to the children who read these books, because we're really addressing the adults in the audience. Harry Potter as a series doesn't do that, at least... At least not consistently. I, I, I would perhaps argue that there are a couple of moments in the later books where, where we begin to where we begin to understand that the audience has perhaps moved on, that the children are not reading these books as readily as once they were. But that's part of the natural evolution of the series, too. I am running enormously long. Yes. And Sam just says in, in the YouTube chat, J.K.R. is now a big voice in the current change in British culture today. And how ironic, of course, that that... In the years since she was inspired to write these books, and certainly looking back on the 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 epochal, uh, the 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 profound social changes which which were wrought in Britain in the 1990s, we've kind of come full circle, and we're looking at some of those those topics, and some of those subjects, some of those conflicts from a very similar perspective now in 2016. Yeah. All right. Let's. Uh, Let's push on because I think I've covered three slides of the 10 that I have today and we are already in excess of 45 minutes in. Good. Let's get to it then and move on to our next. After the, the Malfoys leave the store, Harry slips out of, of Borgen and Burks. He runs into an old witch in Nocturne Alley who exists apparently to, to communicate the danger and the darkness of, of this environment. And then he is abruptly rescued by Hagrid who escorts him back to Diagon Alley and to safety, but much more importantly, not just to Diagon Alley, not just to safety, but to one Hermione Granger. Harry, Harry over here. 
Harry looked up and saw Hermione Granger standing at the top of the white flight of steps to Gringotts. She ran down to meet them, her bushy brown hair flying behind her. What happened to your glasses? Hello, Hagrid. Oh, it's wonderful to see you two again. Are you coming into Gringotts, Harry? As soon as I found the Weasleys, said Harry. You won't have to... Excuse me. Hagrid voice. I haven't done Hagrid voice in forever. You won't have long to wait, Hagrid said with a grin. Harry and Hermione looked around. Sprinting up the crowded street were Ron, Fred, George, Percy, and Mr. Weasley. Harry, Mr. Weasley panted. We hoped you'd gone one great too far. He mopped his glistening bald patch. Molly's frantic. She's coming now. Where did you come out? Ron asked. Nocturne Alley, said Hagrid grimly. Excellent, said Fred and George together. We've never been allowed in, said Ron enviously. I should ruddy well think not, growled Hagrid. Mrs. Weasley now came galloping into view, her handbag swinging wildly in one hand, Ginny just clinging on to the other. Oh, Harry, oh, my dear, you could have been anywhere. Gasping for breath, she pulled a large clothes brush out of her bag and began sweeping off the soot Hagrid hadn't managed to beat away. Mr. Weasley took Harry's glasses, gave them a tap of his wand, and returned them, good as new. It is a cute, it is an adorable, it is an intimate, it is a personal, it is a warm scene. Just seeing Molly and Arthur care for Harry the way that they care for their own children is is genuinely touching, is genuinely wonderful, and we don't draw attention to it. Because I think it's something that... Harry's relationship with Molly and Arthur Weasley is a fascinating one because it is powerful and it is personal and it is clearly very important to him. But it doesn't seem to be the kind of relationship that he is capable of of consciously understanding. It is true that they care for him. It is true that he feels as though he is wanted, as though he belongs, as though he is loved. Let's not hesitate about using that word. Absolutely. Molly and Arthur Weasley love Harry already, even by this point in the unfolding story. What's interesting, though, is that Harry once again seems to be aware of, conscious of, mindful of that gap between a child's experience and an adult's experience. In a weird way, Molly and Arthur are still parents, and he is grateful to have them, but they are still, in a sense, fulfilling their archetypal duty. This is what good parents do. And I like that very much. I like the sense that Harry isn't... Harry, as far as we're aware, at least when dealing with the Weasleys, never feels conscious of his own celebrity, of his own special status. There is no sense in which Harry is unique in that the Weasleys care for him. I guess that's that's the distinction that I want to draw out. They're not caring for Harry specifically, though of course they are caring for Harry specifically. They're caring for a child, a child who needs to be cared for. And when we see later interactions between the Weasleys and Hermione, I think we get another perspective on that. We see, too, that they welcome her into their home, into their community, into their family. So I like very much the, the simple and, and direct interaction between between Harry and the Weasleys and the Weasleys and and children in general. And it's interesting in particular in this chapter because we don't get a similar account of Hermione's parents. We don't... Oh my goodness. To the best of my recollection in the entire series, we don't get a word of attributed dialogue from Hermione's parents. That's 
fascinating. It's obviously not because they're muggles, because we have muggle characters in the series. We have a perspective on that. But to include Hermione's parents, to, to incarnate Hermione's parents on the page, would almost be to... Hmm. It would offer us a new perspective on muggle parentage that would, you can't help but feel, take something away from Harry's personal experience with the Dursleys. That it would somehow undercut that unique and grotesque and unenviable relationship. I find it fascinating that, that the Weasleys as representatives of, of good parenting go pretty much unchallenged in the entire run of the series. Yeah. Oh, Kate, on, oh, let me cancel the, uh, let me cancel the slide there. Kate on Twitter says, we never hear Hermione's parents speak, unlike wizarding parents, even when they're in the scene. Yeah. To which Stephanie replied, so true, they're such an enigma, I wish JKR had done more with them, even just a little. I do think that's a valid perspective. I, I think that, uh, yes, given how much I love Hermione, I would have loved to have, have gotten a little more of Mr. and Mrs. Granger, but I do think that it's conscious and I do think it's purposeful, and I think that the consequence of exploring the Grangers and their relationship with Hermione would would add a counterpoint to something which, at this point in the series, is stronger without a counterpoint. I think that right now we're drawing the contrast very powerfully between good parents, the Weasleys, the magical family, and bad parents, the Dursleys, the Muggle family. I think that's an important distinction that we want to, to bear in mind. So by keeping the Grangers off to one side by not having them express themselves directly on the page, I think we managed to preserve that conflict, preserve that contrast a little more perfectly. You're right, though, certainly in terms of, of ongoing world building, who wouldn't want more from the Grangers? Who wouldn't want a whole book just about their adventures and how they raised young Hermione? I would have loved to have seen that. <laughs> and Kate says, yes, I, I absolutely preempted your, your, your tweet there, or you preempted my statement. I don't know. I wasn't looking at Twitter at the time. This is the burden of trying to manage all of these screens. Oh, and Perspicuous Enigma on Twitter says, Granger family values make it happen. I couldn't agree more. Yes. Yes. Jennifer says, Hermione doesn't get, uh, doesn't get Weasley jumpers because she has a family that loves her. There is a sense in which the Weasleys are compensating for a lack of love in Harry's life, though that doesn't seem to be... It doesn't seem to be conscious. It is simply the case that Hermione doesn't need the Weasleys the way that Harry needs the Weasleys. Uh, emotionally, personally, intimately, you know? Yeah, good. Oh, interesting thought here from Michelle, who says, I wonder if part of Hermione's parents never speaking has to do with them always appearing in a magical realm rather than in the mundane realm. That's fascinating. Now I'm fast-forwarding through the entire series, and I think you might be right. Do we only ever see them in, in a magical milieu? Do we only ever see them in, in a magical context? I think you might be right. That's a fascinating thought too then, because obviously that would that would require certain certain interactions. Yeah. Good. Good. Every time I sit down, it doesn't matter how carefully I think that I've thought about these chapters, doesn't matter how carefully I think I've prepared the seminar session, I sit down and I learn new things from you guys. You're, you're just amazing. Great. <laughs> dentistry is a pretty boring and non-magical job says the the unusually named film slash stories slash code yes good observation yeah <laughs> all right let's keep moving uh because now we have rescued 
Harry and we are moving into, well, we visit uh, Gringotts immediately after that. We have the scene that I discussed earlier, wherein Harry is clearly self-conscious about his relative wealth, but not not moved to the kind of, you know, obligatory behavior, at least the, the obligatory offer that I think an adult would feel compelled to make. Then we, and, and this is interesting, from the perspective of the end of the book, when we retroactively return to this sequence and, and try to understand it perhaps a little better, it is then important that Harry and Hermione and Ron wander around Diagon Alley for an hour before finally making their way to Flourish and Blots, where they discover, much to their amazement, the Gilderoy Lockhart book signing. Let's move into that. Ladies and gentlemen, he said loudly, waving for quiet, what an extraordinary moment this is. The perfect moment for me to make a little announcement I've been sitting on for some time. When young Harry here stepped into flourish and blots today, he only wanted to buy my autobiography, which I shall be happy to present him of now, free of charge. The crowd applauded again. He had no idea, Lockhart continued, giving Harry a little shake that made his glasses slip to the end of his nose that he would shortly be getting much, much more than my book, Magical Me. He and his schoolmates will, in fact, be getting the real Magical Me. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I have great pleasure and pride in announcing that this September I will be taking up the post of defense against the dark arts teacher at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. The crowd cheered and clapped, and Harry found himself being presented with the entire works of Gilderoy Lockhart, Staggering slightly under their weight, he managed to make his way out of the limelight to the edge of the room, where Ginny was standing next to her new cauldron. You have these, Harry mumbled to her, tipping the books into the cauldron. I'll buy my own. Bet you loved that, didn't you, Potter? said a voice Harry had no trouble recognizing. He straightened up and found himself face to face with Draco Malfoy, who was wearing his usual sneer. I don't, I think have a better opportunity than this to talk about Ginny Weasley, so I'm going to segue into that and then return to the question of, of Gilderoy Lockhart's relationship with, oh, what is it called, I guess, reality. I love Ginny Weasley. I adore Ginny Weasley. There is, of course, a rift in the Potter fandom, for those of you who have read all the books, for those of you who know how certain relationships turn out, how certain expectations and desires were foiled, I love Ginny Weasley. I love pretty much the way that all of those primary relationships shake out later in the series. She is so effortlessly vulnerable throughout this book, but also possessed, I think, of a very quiet strength. And what happens to her in the course of Chamber of Secrets? Well, we're going to discuss that a little more when we get to the very end of the book, but I would urge you to consider Ginny's experiences in this book, from her perspective, how would we account for those experiences in a non-magical context? If this were an entirely mundane tale, what would we think of, of what Ginny Weasley has gone through? It's really tough. All right, so let's look at Gilderoy Lockhart, let's look at this, this fatuous and pompous and ridiculous and yet nonetheless, yes, fairly charming fellow. And of course, we're talking immediately about fame again. This is Harry's first encounter with a, a genuine celebrity, I think it's fair to say, in the Wizarding World, at least a genuine celebrity who isn't, who isn't secondarily attached to the faculty of Hogwarts. Gilderoy, or 
at least immediately attached to the faculty of Hogwarts, Gilderoy Lockhart is famous. But even he recognizes that Harry's celebrity is of a different sort, that Harry's celebrity is something, something otherworldly. And he co-opts that celebrity immediately when he drags Harry into the limelight, when he drags Harry in front of the photographer and says, you and I together, that guarantees the first page. Yes, because Harry pretty much guarantees the first page, the, the front page, rather. It's fascinating to look at the two characters as really opposites. Gilderoy Lockhart is a constructed figure. That's going to become much more clear later, but clearly this is inauthentic. Clearly this is, at best, a kind of, of banal narcissism. At worst, it could be something far more grave. But this public persona is evidently constructed. And Harry, on the other hand, is pretty consistently trying to undercut his own constructed persona. Not a persona that he himself constructed, but a persona that was constructed for him. The legend of Harry Potter. Too often, for Harry's taste, overshadows the, the reality of Harry Potter. The legend of Gilderoy Lockhart is one that, that Gilderoy Lockhart himself imbues with a greater and greater significance. This is a PR campaign par excellence. Yeah. He does seem, as, as a few of you are saying, he does seem immediately, we've known this guy for about 30 seconds, and he seems immediately to be a very bad choice for the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Hogwarts has some staffing issues, I think it's fair to say. Yeah. And then we talked, too, about the books, about Harry tipping the books into the cauldron. It is potentially a sweet moment. I think it's entirely possible to read this as, as a moment of kindness, as a moment of, of awareness, but I think, too, clearly it has something to do with, with a personal and immediate contact with Lockhart, that, that Harry doesn't want to owe this guy anything. And then, again, we circle back around. In case you had missed it, in case casual reader, you had missed that we're talking about fame, and we're talking about image, and we're talking about legend and myth. In case you missed it, we circle back around to Draco Malfoy, who shows up basically out of nowhere just to, to, to land that thematic point. That is particularly significant. Because I said earlier that it was significant that Harry and Hermione and Ron had wandered around Diagon Alley for an hour prior to, to going to the bookstore, prior to running into Gilderoy Lockhart. That is true. It is also true that earlier in the chapter, Lucius Malfoy had said that he was in a great hurry, that he had urgent business. Bear those two thoughts in mind, particularly as we move toward the end of, of today. Yeah. Yes, uh, Andre here in the YouTube chat says, Dumbledore hired Lockhart to get a closer look at what he was doing, according to Pottermore. Again, we, we kind of have to, to tread carefully around these extra textual elements. Um, is it true that, that, that Dumbledore hired... Let me cancel the slide. I just realized the slide is still up. Is it true that Dumbledore hired Lockhart for that reason? Well, yes, in a sense it is, because that's what it says on Pottermore, and Pottermore is a quasi-canonical source. Is it true within the pages of Chamber of Secrets that that is what happened? No. I mean, I guess potentially. I guess potentially you could make that argument. But no, not really. We're not really convinced of that in Chamber of Secrets. It certainly seems more likely that 
that Lockhart's reputation, that all of his dealings with, with banshees and werewolves and who knows what else, that that earned him the spot in, in the Hogwarts staff. So we have to be a little bit careful about pulling in those external elements, but you're right. I mean, there is, there is an explanation offered at least by, by JK Rowling and, and by extension by Pottermore in general. All right. As Jennifer says, I don't think there's any evidence of why Dumbledore hired Lockhart from the book. Yes, yes, yes. Lots of, lots of Pottermore stuff. And I have to say too, that, that, at least by the standards of authors who who do expand their worlds um, out with the the bound pages of of the novels themselves, I do think that J.K. Rowling really does a good job of it. I, I hmm. it's something that is difficult because we have such a temptation, particularly with Rowling herself. There is such a temptation to to treat everything she says as as equivalently canonical. To, to take something that she said in an interview and place it against the actual text of the book and say, these things are worth the same. Or even to say that the thing J.K. Rowling said in an interview is worth more than the published text of the book. And that's a problem. You, you wind up in some dark spots if you, if you credit every author with that degree of, of control over their fictional worlds. And more importantly, I guess, the interpretation of their fictional worlds. The, the reader's ability to analyze and to interpret, to respond, to understand personally and privately without the intrusion of the author is absolutely sacred. That is absolutely fundamental. J.K. Rowling's perspective on what is true or untrue about the Harry Potter novels is interesting, and it is exactly as valid as yours is or as mine is. Our interpretations are all valid. If it's in the text, if you can make an argument, then it is, to a greater or lesser degree, true. We're going to bear that in mind as we move into the spoiler zone at the end of today's session. All right. Let's keep moving here. Oh, and Sam says the wikis put her interviews on the same level of canon as the books. They, they do. I mean, they sure do. That's not a... That is not a positive. Honestly, not a respectful and not a terribly intellectually consistent place to be. The books have to stand alone. The books have to stand apart. They are stories. They have to work on their own terms first, and your response to that story. If it's in accord with what J.K. Rowling says, that's fantastic, and you can certainly, you are, you are, you are free to take the things that she says about it and, and fold those elements into your response, your experience. That's, that's a completely valid piece of interpretive work. But if you find yourself at odds with J.K. Rowling, then your personal experience is sacred and is absolutely to be respected. Let's keep pushing. Um, good, good, good. Oh, yeah. A lot of comments here about just how amazing Gilderoy Lockhart is. That's, that's absolutely true. <laughs> All right, let's keep moving on. And we're going to talk a little about the end of this chapter, the end of the sequence with the return of Lucius Malfoy and his winning ways. Let me share this with you here. Well, 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 Arthur Weasley. It was Mr. Malfoy. He stood with his hand on Draco's shoulder, sneering in just the same way. Lucius, said Mr. Weasley, nodding coldly. Busy time at the ministry, I hear, said Mr. Malfoy. All those raids... I hope they're paying you overtime. He reached into Ginny's cauldron and extracted from amid the glossy Lockhart books a very old, very battered copy of A Beginner's Guide to Transfiguration. 
Obviously not, Mr. Malfoy said. Dear me, what is the use of being a disgrace to the name of wizard if they don't even pay you well for it? Mr. Weasley flushed darker than either Ron or Ginny. We have a very different idea of what disgraces the name of wizard, Malfoy, he said. Clearly, said Mr. Malfoy, his pale eyes straying to Mr. and Mrs. Granger, who were watching apprehensively. The company you keep, Weasley, and I thought your family could sink no lower. There was a thud of metal as Ginny's cauldron went flying. Mr. Weasley had thrown himself at Mr. Malfoy, knocking him backward into a bookshelf. If you want textual proof that there exists in Harry's experience a gulf between the world of children and adults, and even, I think, within the world of children, you can, you can fold in the staff and faculty of Hogwarts. If you're looking for proof within the text of that gulf, look at the way that he consistently refers to Mr. Weasley and Mr. Malfoy, <laughs> even here as they are hurling themselves at each other. Mr. Weasley, Mr. Malfoy. Not even Snape gets an appropriate title when we get to Hogwarts, and Snape is a much more immediately threatening authority figure, but he exists in a different world. This is, in a sense, the real world, even though we're in Diagon Alley, even though this is part of, of the wizarding side of, of British experience. It's still mundane in that sense. By the time we get to Hogwarts, we are in the boarding school story, and those lines of authority and responsibility are are more codified, they are more reliable, but they're also externally enforced in a way that allows Harry to push back against them. This is something out with his experience, and therefore he doesn't seem to rise to challenge it in exactly the same way. We're going to look, too, at exactly what happened during the sequence a little later in, in the seminar session. So what do we think here? What is the, the underlying beat? What is the underlying motivation between Malfoy and Weasley? Why does this happen? I mean, I know that there is an explanation for this offered later in the book, and I'm not encouraging you to, to, to spoil it, but as we are reading the book for the first time, as we, as we are allowing these events to unfold in real or near real time, what do we make of this conflict? Let me stop that and come back <laughs> as I try and catch up. Yes, Natalie says, we have a very different idea of what disgraces the name of Wizard Malfoy, one of the great lines from the series, honestly. And yeah, absolutely, uh, one of our first examples of that conflict being clearly understood, that there really is a division in wizarding culture, too. That's, or, or there are, in fact, multiple divisions in wizarding culture. Again, we're, we're moving into an era that is more fragmented, even by Harry's personal experience. And certainly, we had that in the first book, too. I want to be clear that the first book was not simplistic in its depictions of, of, of wizard culture or of muggle culture. I commented at the time that, that many of those conflicts were more complicated, fractious, contentious than we might have expected them to be. But now, those internal divisions are becoming all the more significant. There is an opposition between Arthur Weasley and Lucius Malfoy that isn't grounded in class or wealth or authority. It's all of those things and many other things besides. It's about the sense of what a wizard should be, even though the Weasleys themselves are a pure-blood family. So it's not just about the purity of one's blood. It's also about the way that 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 blood is put to use, the way that the, the family comports itself. There is a question of 
what, dignity here of, of elitism, perhaps? That's going to be an ongoing discussion as we move through the book. Yes, Perspicuous Enigma says, I always thought Arthur Jumping Lucius went against his character. He doesn't seem like a brawler to me. And isn't it interesting that it's not Malfoy's inferences about the, the poverty in which the Weasleys find themselves or about this, this scrappy secondhand copy of a textbook that his daughter is going to take with her to Hogwarts. It's specifically when Malfoy insults the Grangers, insults by proxy, I guess, but by, by proximity, he insults the Grangers. That's what triggers Arthur's physical attack, the physical altercation. Yeah, I can absolutely see this, this being somewhat out of character. Yeah. Yes, and Katie says, agreed, which made me assume there was backstory we didn't know. Isn't that fascinating? Yes, there could well be backstory. And we certainly get a hint that there is backstory because we have Lucius Malfoy badmouthing Arthur Weasley long before they ever meet on the page. By the time he, he shows up to sell his poisons, he's already being tremendously critical, personally critical of Arthur Weasley. So all of that, I think, makes a certain amount of sense. And I am inclined to agree. And Emily says, yes, Arthur respects muggles. I think that's very true. Though, that would perhaps be one of the circumstances in which a greater sense of the Grangers would, would assist our understanding of Arthur Weasley, would assist our understanding of, of his perspective on the world. There is a sense, because we are held at such a distance from the Grangers, that he respects them just because they are Mongols, because basically that is their only characteristic. It would have been interesting had we had more from the Grangers in this scene, in previous scenes, then we could have identified what it is about the Grangers that Arthur finds so, so worthy, what he finds so, so meritorious about them. That's, you know, there is a price that you pay whenever you make a choice in a story, and, and that, I think, is part of the price for maintaining that strict division between Harry's personal experience of, of parents and parenting. Let's, um, let's keep going, because we are still still struggling here. In fact, we are going to cut ahead now, as soon as I can catch up with the right part of my notes. We're going to begin chapter five, and I'm going to put up the slide here. Um, we're going to begin chapter five as the Weasleys are preparing for the journey to platform nine and three quarters, which of course echoes the structure of the first book where, where Vernon Dursley took Harry to platform nine and three quarters. Harry went in the first book to Diagon Alley with Hagrid. He bought his school supplies and then returned to Privet Drive for a month before leaving for Hogwarts. The same thing happens here. He spends another month at the burrow with the Weasleys before leaving for Hogwarts. I don't know why it is necessary for Hogwarts students, apparently all Hogwarts students, to buy their school supplies on August 1st, but they apparently do. So then we get, at the beginning of Chapter 5, this slide. Harry couldn't see how eight people, six large trunks, two owls, and a rat were going to fit into one small Ford Anglia. He had reckoned, of course, without the special features that Mr. Weasley, uh, excuse me, that Mr. Weasley had added. Not a word to Molly, he whispered to Harry as he opened the trunk and showed him how it had been magically expanded so that the luggage fitted easily. When at last they were all in the car, Mrs. Weasley glanced into the back seat where Harry, Ron, Fred, George, and Percy were all sitting comfortably side by side and said, Muggles do no more than we give them credit for, don't they? She and Ginny got into the front seat, which had been stretched so that it resembled a park bench. I mean, you'd never know it was this roomy from the outside, would you? 
Mr. Weasley started up the engine, and they trundled out of the yard, Harry turning back for a last look at the house. He barely had time to wonder when he'd see it again, when they were back. George had forgotten his box of filibuster fireworks. Five minutes after that, they skidded to a halt in the yard so that Fred could run in for his broomstick. They had almost reached the highway when Ginny shrieked that she'd left her diary. By the time she had clambered back into the car, they were running very late, and tempers were running high. It is, as I see a couple of you calling out immediately, it's bigger on the inside. I love it when they say that. This is a funny and engaging scene in its own right, of course. But it's also a nice bit of structural business. We lock the conflict. We also foreshadow significant events for later. We also motivate Harry and Ron's decisions, to a greater or lesser extent, in the very next scene. There's an immediacy here that I find enormously charming. We introduce, as I said, though, significant elements. George's fireworks, Fred's broomstick, Ginny's diary. And I specifically mention that because even at this point in her career, J.K. Rowling had built up a reputation for, for running at her manuscripts with a certain reckless enthusiasm. She had built up a reputation for being a writer possessed of a great deal of charm and slightly less discipline. That, though, I don't think is entirely fair. I don't think it's entirely fair to say that the Harry Potter novels are are ramshackle, that they succeed despite flaws in their underlying structure. As I said, J.K. Rowling makes choices in the creation of the book. Certain elements are emphasized, and there are costs associated with that. We don't get to explore other avenues, because we're, we're too busy focusing on the ones that are important to this particular take on the story. And some of those elements, you may argue, are are the wrong choice. Some of those elements are emphasized to the cost of the underlying narrative. But she is capable of great acuity, of a great lightness of touch, and a great playfulness. All three of those things, the, the fireworks, the broomstick, of course, and the diary, will be enormously and repeatedly significant later on. So rather than drawing in inessential elements, rather than filling these pages with with insignificant detail, or with comedic detail, or using this as an opportunity to come up with more fun, ridiculous artifacts of the wizarding world, J.K. Rowling manages to connect it precisely to those elements that will be necessary later in the story. And I think that's, that's, that's worthy of a respect that she too often is denied by people who see the magic in her work, but too often not the craft. Yeah. <laughs> Kate says, I'll never forget Stephen King's review for either uh, either third or, or the third or fourth Harry Potter book. Ms. Rowling never met an adverb she didn't like. You know, that's a style issue, I think, more than anything else. She writes in a way that is that is consistently hyperbolic, that is consistently adverbial. I think that that's absolutely true. Um, I can see that being in stark opposition to the kind of writing for which Stephen King is is rightly fated. But this brings us back to one of the most, most frequent sticking points whenever you're analyzing any kind of literature, whenever you're talking about novels. The idea that there is a right way to do it, the idea that you have to follow all of the Elmore Leonard, you know, advice that you can find on the internet and that will lead you to a good book. No. Stephen King writes fantastic Stephen King books. Stephen King would write terrible J.K. Rowling books and vice versa. 
that doesn't mean that one approach is better than the other. It's interesting, of course, that, that Stephen King and J.K. Rowling have a slightly, and I'm sure this is overstated for, for the purposes of, of headlines and blog posts, a slightly competitive relationship. Because, as I've said before, if you listen to my, my writing-oriented podcast, The Journeyman Writer, I talk not infrequently about J.K. Rowling and Stephen King being the twin patron saints of The Journeyman Writer. These are writers who sit down, who do the work, who treat it with respect, and who finish their books. That's, that's admirable. That's enviable, honestly. But they write very different kinds of books. This idea that there is only one process, that there is only one style, that there is only one structure, that there is only one finished story that is worth your time as a writer or as a reader is, I mean, clearly preposterous. And we wouldn't have that preconception if writing weren't baffling, weren't challenging, weren't unpredictable, weren't wild. That's the consequence of the creative act. We try to find safe harbors. We try to find metrics and rubrics that we can use to understand this, this magical creative impulse. And when we find something that works, we cling to it, even to the exclusion of, of contrary information. So I can absolutely see where, where Stephen King is coming from, but yes, yes. <laughs> Oh, to be fair, says Kate, it was a generally positive review. It was it was one thing he had against that book. Yes, no, that that that's fair. When I say a combative relationship, there there's hmm, there are differences in style. But but Stephen King is a fairly generous, uh, a fairly generous writer. He he generally recognizes the the virtues in books, even those books which are unlike his own. And as Kate Clark calls out on Twitter too, it is a three beat as well. Of course, they come back three times. Well, of course they do. Here we see exactly the kind of thing that, that a three-beat can accomplish. This is a three-beat without inversion. This is a three-beat without subversion. This is a three-beat that, that builds to an appropriate climax. Though you will see that we, we do invert our perspective here at the end. It says that Harry's wondering when he's going to see the burrow again. He barely had time to wonder when, he, uh, when he'd see it again when they were back. So we focus on the return. In the second beat, five minutes after that, they skidded to a halt in the yard. We focus on the return. With the third beat, by the time she had clambered back into the car, they were running very late. We focus not on the return, but instead the departure. That's a very subtle kind of, of inversion of perspective that, that plays off the three-beat structure. All right, let's move on. If I'm sure that I've said everything that I have to say about that slide, I do. Okay. So we move on from there to platform nine and three quarters, uh, wherein Harry and Ron find themselves unable to, to cross that threshold, a threshold of which I made a great deal back in the first season of Dear Mr. Potter. It is one of the most important thresholds that we will cover in all of Harry Potter. There's a reason that that the entryway to platform nine and three quarters is as important as it is. And we can't, I think, overlook the importance of this twist. We can't overlook the importance of Harry's inability to cross that same threshold again. His adventures throughout this book are going to be reflective of the first book. He's going to encounter many of the same oppositions. He's going to encounter many of the same challenges in this book as he encountered in the first book, and he's going to deal with many of them in a very similar way. As I said, you know, the structure of the end of Chamber of Secrets is enormously imitative of the structure of the end of The Philosopher's Stone. 
We go into the Forbidden Forest. Dumbledore disappears from Hogwarts. We're saved by, by an unexpected thing. And then there's a final showdown in the caverns beneath Hogwarts. I guess minor spoilers for, for, for the end of the book there. But I think it would be fair at this point to have a sense that that's, that's the shape of this story. Here, though, we're denied a very powerful moment of, of reflection between this book and the first book. And it's important to recognize that the, the transliminality of the, the entryway to Platform 9 and 3 quarters is the denial of, of that, that transliminal experience is sustained through really the rest of this entire chapter. It's not just that Harry and Ron can't get onto Platform 9 and 3 quarters so they can't take the Hogwarts, Hogwarts Express, excuse me, so they can't approach Hogwarts in the traditional fashion. It's not a moment that passes. It's a moment that is sustained because we then follow that up with the decision unwise though it may be to take the flying fort anglia to hogwarts instead and i think that if we look at if we look at the specifics of those journeys there is something enormously mundane about going on a steam train you know the the, the journey itself on the hogwarts express is absolutely predictable it is exactly as it seems to be it's a steam train now we have to oppose that with the flying car. We have to oppose that with a, a fundamentally mechanical, you know, experience, uh, the fundamentally mechanical experience of the steam train with the fundamentally magical experience of the flying Ford Anglia. These are two very different experiences, but they're approaching the same, they're, they're a way of manifesting the same transition, I guess. They're a way of, of crossing the same threshold. And that's powerful. That's purposeful. It's not resolved until, well, arguably it's not resolved until the very end of the chapter. I think even when we arrive at Hogwarts, we're not really resolving this alternate approach because we're even then drawing the contrast between Harry's first year experience with the, the sorting hat and, and the, the grand banquet and all of those experiences. And in this book, we have his and Ron's experience of being withheld from that. There are... There, there, they are on the, the outside of that experience. And that's compounded when they're later interrogated by Snape and, and taken to his office. We'll get to that in, in just a moment, too. Let's take a look, though, at the flying car itself. I'm just realizing now how long I'm running here, how, how, how overdue I am. So let's, uh, let's put up this slide and take a look at the flying car itself. It was a different world. The wheels of the car skimmed the sea of fluffy cloud, the sky a bright, endless blue under the blinding white sun. All we've got to worry about now are airplanes, said Ron. They looked at each other and started to laugh. For a long time, they couldn't stop. It was as though they had been plunged into a fabulous dream. This, thought Harry, was surely the only way to travel, past swirls and turrets of snowy cloud, in a car full of hot, bright sunlight, with a fat pack of toffees in the glove compartment and the prospect of seeing Fred's and George's jealous faces when they landed smoothly and spectacularly on the sweeping lawn in front of Hogwarts Castle. So look at those points of contrast with the experience in the first book, the train and the car. The train on tracks, entirely predictable. The car under their authority. They are directly controlling this thing. They are not, I mean, Technically, in a sense, they are passengers, but they are also in charge of their own destiny here. They are making the choice, and then they are making it happen. The train is a mundane environment filled with 
unexpected and supernatural things, whether that's kids practicing magic, we have the familiars, we have robes and we have wands, we have all of that wizard world candy that Harry's introduced to in the first book. Here, there's none of that. We have instead a fat pack of toffees in the glove compartment. We have something entirely mundane. So that inversion, the completely traditional and prosaic exterior, coupled with the magical interior in The Philosopher's Stone, is here juxtaposed with a completely outrageous exterior of flying Ford Anglia and a completely mundane interior. Here we are, two 12-year-old boys off for a drive. Well, okay, maybe not a completely mundane interior, but still. We also have to question here to what degree Harry is hmm, leaning into the spirit of adventure, to what degree he is narrativizing his own experience. Here they are having a wonderful time. Obviously, they're already anticipating fame and success when they arrive at Hogwarts, which isn't entirely unprecedented. Fred and George were enormously impressed by Harry's misdirected application of the flu powder, by the fact he ended up in Nocturne Alley. That only increased his celebrity. Apparently, Harry Potter can do no wrong, as far as Fred and George are concerned. So they're already looking ahead to that, but they would have to be exceptionally naive to believe that that is going to be the end of their adventure here. Minerva McGonagall will later point out that Harry should have sent her an owl. He absolutely should. He didn't think of it. Given the number of parents and presumably grandparents and brothers and sisters and who knows what all else on platform nine and three quarters, it is inconceivable that the barrier between King's Cross and platform nine and three quarters should have remained impassable for long. The right thing to do, the smart thing to do, was to remain right there. Harry has a line about the fact that he and Ron are drawing attention to themselves. Well, so what? What does that matter? Why not just take up a, a spot opposite the entrance to Platform 9 and 3 quarters and wait for hundreds of people to spill out of that platform to return to their cars? Go to Ron's parents at that point and figure out what they should do. But no, instead, Harry and Ron take immediate action, take immediate adventure. So the question is not, do they do the right thing? I think we can all agree that they're fairly impetuous. The question is, to what degree do Harry and Ron believe that they are doing the right thing? And to what degree do they not care that they're doing the wrong thing? They're just gleeful about the possible adventure. We can speculate in that regard. Arriving at Hogwarts, they crash into the Whomping Willow and the car drives off to live on its own in the wild. And there's something interesting there too about the conflict between an enchanted car and an enchanted tree, neither of which is natural, neither of which would have anything to do with the other but for the intrusion of Ron and of Harry. Also, obviously, the conflict between the Muggle world and the magical world and the modern world and the medieval world, that is perhaps the most striking. There is something powerful about about the Ford Anglia crashing into the Whomping Willow outside of Hogwarts Castle. That is a forcible intrusion of the modern world into the medieval world. Harry and Ron creep from there into the castle itself, where they are accosted by Snape, who turns out to be quite the reader. So, he said softly, the train isn't good enough for the famous Harry Potter and his faithful sidekick, Weasley. Wanted to arrive with a bang, did we boys? No, sir, it was the barrier at King's Cross. It- Silence, said Snape coldly. 
What have you done with the car? Ron gulped. This wasn't the first time Snape had given Harry the impression of being able to read minds, but a moment later he understood, as Snape unrolled today's issue of the Evening Prophet. You were seen, he hissed, showing them the headline. Flying Ford Anglia mystifies muggles. He began to read aloud. Two muggles in London convinced they saw an old car flying over the post office tower. At noon in Norfolk, Mrs. Hetty Bayliss, while hanging out her washing, Mr. Angus Fleet of Peebles reported to police six or seven muggles in all. I believe your father works in the Misuse of Muggle Artifacts office, he said, looking up at Ron and smiling still more nastily. Dear, dear, his own son. Snape, of course, the worst. And we should draw attention to, <laughs> in this moment, to yet more amazing names from J.K. Rowling. How perfect are the names Mrs. Hetty Bayliss and Mr. Angus Fleet. I love those. So, this does serve an actual purpose. More than reintroducing us to Snape, though it does accomplish that, more than keeping Harry and Ron on the periphery of what we might think of as the authentic Hogwarts experience. Just contrast what they're going through in these chapters, or in these pages, I guess. All of this takes place in the course of one chapter. But within these pages, compared to Hermione's experience, for example, or Neville's experience, or the experience of any one of the other second-year students at Hogwarts school, they are still on the outs. They are still on the periphery. They are not engaging exactly with that same experience. We are also, though, perhaps most importantly, dragging the Ministry storyline into Hogwarts. We're connecting all of that earlier antagonism and conflict with Malfoy, all of that class warfare, all of those greater political concerns. We are dragging them into Hogwarts and we are anchoring them, embodying them within Snape. That's powerful. That's a moment of reassurance that we haven't simply set aside the first arc of this novel. I wouldn't describe it as the first act. The act structure of this novel is a little more complicated and very much depends upon your perspective. As is so often the case, we have to look back at the novel from, from the, the perspective of the last page in order to genuinely understand, I think, the structure. But we can see here very clearly that Harry and Ron are not going to be allowed to forget everything that they have already experienced. We're going to drag those conflicts in and we're going to embody them within the framework, within the structure of Hogwarts. But already we see that that changes the underlying conflict. Because Harry's relationship with Snape is not like his relationship with Mr. Malfoy. And Ron's too. There's a... <sighs> There's a simplicity to this relationship. But this relationship, as we discussed repeatedly throughout the first seminar series, this relationship is understood. It is codified. There is a framework surrounding the antagonism between Snape and Harry specifically. So we're, we're taking that conflict, but we're also recontextualizing that conflict, and that's going to push us forward into the actual beginning of, of the Hogwarts storyline here. Finally, let's look at... Let me double-check, in fact. Yes, this is, in fact, my last slide. Let's look at the last slide as Snape takes the boys to his office and summons McGonagall and Dumbledore, and we get this. Well, you're expelling us, aren't you? said Ron. Harry looked quickly at Dumbledore. 
Not today, Mr. Weasley, said Dumbledore, but I must impress upon both of you that the seriousness of what you, excuse me, but I must impress upon both of you the seriousness of what you have done. I will be writing to both of your families tonight. I must also warn you that if you do anything like this again, I will have no choice but to expel you. Snape looked as though Christmas had been cancelled. He cleared his throat and said, Professor Dumbledore, these boys have flouted the decree for the restriction of underage wizardry, caused serious damage to an old and valuable tree, surely acts of this nature. It will be for Professor McGonagall to decide on these boys' punishments, Severus, said Dumbledore calmly. They are in her house, and therefore her responsibility. He turned to Professor McGonagall. I must go back to the feast, Minerva. I've got to give out a few notices. Come, Severus, there's a delicious-looking custard tart I want to sample. Snape shot a look of pure venom at Harry and Ron as he allowed himself to be swept out of his office, leaving them alone with Professor McGonagall, who was still eyeing them like a wrathful eagle. We get an interesting perspective on authority and justice in this scene. Dumbledore says that it's up to McGonagall to decide what happens to Gryffindor students. To what degree is that true? To what degree does McGonagall have authority to enforce, even to create, school rules for Gryffindor students? Is it true that Snape is offered the same authority for Slytherin students? To what degree is Dumbledore necessary as a figure of authority in the school, assuming that there is something to what he says? And if there is something to what he says, and this is perhaps the most striking point, if there is something to what he says, why does Dumbledore open by saying that neither Ron nor Harry are expelled. It seems as though he's already anticipated Minerva McGonagall's punishment of these boys, which we might argue, if we are feeling particularly generous, we might argue that that is an understanding born of a long professional relationship between Albus Dumbledore and Minerva McGonagall. But as it is, we're continuing to, to challenge our sense of authority at Hogwarts, to reinterpret these established figures of authority, this, this established hierarchy of authority, with a sense of, well, justice. But it's justice from a childish perspective. It's justice from the perspective of Harry and Ron. It's a little difficult to read this scene and not be reminded of the act of grave injustice which defines the first book, which is the awarding of the House Cup to Gryffindor. This outrageous imposition of, of Dumbledore's own preference on, on what is supposed to be a year-long academic contest. He hands the House Cup to Gryffindor for really no defensible reason. And here again, we see this. Oh, Liz says on Twitter, Dumbledore is so classy. Custard tart, I want to sample. Code for it, drop it, Severus. We're done here. It's true. You could rewrite that. See you later. Dumbledore out. <laughs> effortlessly, effortlessly classy. All right, guys, it is now 20 to 4. Let me give you all the opportunity to, to bring up any additional points that you'd like to make, any additional topics you'd like to discuss. I'll give you just a moment Type those out in the YouTube chat. Type those out on Twitter. I, instead, am going to put up the last slide, which is our preview of next week. Next week, session three, second years, chapters six to eight. 
We're going to look at three chapters next week. That's going to take place next Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern. We're back in our hitherto traditional 9 p.m. slot. So if you can join us for that, that'll be great. I think the following week, I'm going to try to run a 10 a.m. slot. We're just bouncing around all over the clock as we as we compile these seminar sessions. Uh, I'm going to try for a 10 a.m. the following week for, for session four. If not, I'll try and squeeze in another 2 p.m. session. But we're, we're going to move between those times, 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 7 p.m., and 9 p.m., but I'll try and include a few 9 p.m.s for those of you who are, you know, burdened with children, as I myself am burdened with children and oftentimes can't find the time to sit down and enjoy a little discussion of Harry Potter until until 9 p.m. And of course, those of you in Australia, I can't even I can't even transpose those times for you. So, uh, yes, yes. Stephanie says, yes, I'm intrigued by a 10 a.m. time. When I was in college, I was one of those perverse individuals who would always choose the earliest possible lectures and seminar sessions, the, the earliest possible tutorial sessions, I would always try and fill my schedule with, with 7.30 a.m., with 8 a.m. sessions. And those were always the, the, the least frequented. Those were always the emptiest sessions because I guess, you know, being a morning person is, is not something that we should necessarily be proud of, but it is something that I find... Uh, that I find enormously stimulating. There is something about pouring a cup of coffee and coming and sitting down and talking about uh, <laughs> talking about uh, these sessions. And, and Malik says, yes, it'll be 2 a.m. in France. I do apologize. Myomar says it'll be 4 a.m. I know it's just, it's impossible to, to maintain a consistent time that's appropriate for everyone. So I hope this way that more people will be able to show up live. And of course, you guys will be able to enjoy the... Uh, the <laughs> Andre says I prefer to call that time of day pre-noon. I can understand that too. Abolish mornings. Abolish mornings may be going a, a, a little, a little too far. And Asagi says, 10 a.m. Eastern, that's 7 a.m. for me. It is, but it's a perfectly reasonable time for our friends in Central Europe. It's a perfectly reasonable time for our friends in Australia. So, yes. Oh, Mary says, Alistair, do you know what time the October 7th session will be? Yes, I had an announcement on this, Mary. Thank you very much for reminding me. There will, in fact, be no session the week of October 7th. Lonnie and I are going to be out of town at the end of that week, and we need some time to prepare for that. So we are taking that that whole week off. So we're just going to push the last three sessions, I guess that is, the three sessions remaining uh, from October 7th. We're going to push all of those sessions back one week. So we are then going to, to wrap up the Friday before Halloween. I guess that's the 27th. Is that true? Let me look at my calendar here. Yes, so rather than the last three sessions taking place on the 7th, the 14th, and the 21st, they will instead be taking place on the 14th, the 21st, and the 28th. I do apologize for the confusion. I will revise the uh, the seminar schedule that is available on storywonk.com. I will get to that this afternoon, and we can uh, we can have a more reliable... <laughs> we can have a more reliable schedule there, yes. In response to Dumbledore's courtesy leaving the room, Jeff Powers offers on Twitter, one drop. That's pretty perfect. That is the pretty perfect uh, wizarding equivalent of the mic drop. I like that a lot. Good, good, good. All right. This then, I think, yes, Natalie says, even Dumbledore is not immune to having to serve the boarding school story tropes. He's absolutely not. Dumbledore embodies the the boarding school story tropes. Oh, and Christine says, I'm imagining Dumbledore doing a mic drop. Yes. <laughs> good. Andre says that Harry could burn down Hogwarts and Dumbledore would be like, well, no dessert, I guess. Yes. 
<laughs> for washing his hands in the restroom. 20,000 points to Gryffindor. We will be talking a little about, about House Cup points um, for for Gryffindor and, and for the other houses too. Let me cancel that. We will be talking a little more about those next week because we're going to see some, some house point inflation. Hermione earns some very generous house point allocations, house cup point allegation, uh, allocations, my goodness, uh, right at the beginning of, of the, the Hogwarts part of the story. So we're definitely going to be uh, looking at that next week. All right, let's wrap this up. I want to very quickly alight upon this this point of speculation. I want to to offer an alternate theory that is going to inform our understanding of, of some of what we've already seen and some of what we will see in the future. So if you have not yet finished Chamber of Secrets, stop listening now. We will see you next week, 9 p.m. Eastern for chapters 6 to 8. We're finally going to get into the Hogwarts story. I shall give you all a moment to, uh, to sign out and to say farewell. And then I'm going to get into the theory. And we're going to begin just to make sure that people have a chance to sign out. We're going to begin by asking some questions here. This is just going to take a couple of minutes. Why did Dobby visit Harry, convinced of Harry's personal, imminent danger? Opening the Chamber of Secrets is not going to endanger Harry. Ironically, Harry is one of the few that we know for sure is safe from the contents of the Chamber of Secrets. He's not going to face death and destruction the way that Dobby obviously believes that he will. Furthermore, how did Dobby get his hands on Harry's mail? All those letters from Ron, from Hermione, even from Hagrid, they were all somehow misdirected into Dobby's less-than-capable hands. Here's the theory. We know from the perspective of the end of the book, looking back at these events, that this is the moment where Lucius Malfoy passes the diary the, the ominously mentioned diary off to Jenny. That is what triggers the entire core conflict for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Now, we might wonder why Lucius Malfoy chose to target Ginny Weasley. And to me, the obvious answer that reconciles these points is that he didn't. My suspicion, my means of explaining several inexplicable things about this story, is simply that Lucius Malfoy intended to give Tom Riddle's diary to Harry himself. It may even be the case that he did give Tom Riddle's diary to Harry himself. We think of that moment with, with the, uh, the textbook of Transfiguration as the moment, the, the fight sequence between, between uh, Arthur Weasley and, and Lucius Malfoy. We think of that moment as the moment where the diary is passed into Ginny's possession, but that may not be the case. It's not impossible that Lucius Malfoy somehow managed to slip the diary into the Gilderoy Lockhart books that Harry was given. It is tempting to imagine a scenario in which Gilderoy Lockhart is prompted by Lucius Malfoy to take Harry up onto the stage, to, to, to have Harry in front of the cameras to fate his celebrity, to give him these books, including the diary. Because giving the diary to Harry simply makes that much more sense. Malfoy knows that the, the bearer of the diary, the user of the diary, is going to be overcome, is going to be overwhelmed by it. That could conceivably be a threat to Harry directly. That would be the kind of threat, if this plan was long in the making, that would be the kind of threat that would actually account for Dobby's urgent warnings to Harry. As it is, though, it's a little difficult to reconcile Dobby's fear for Harry's life. I'm just not sure quite how that works out. 
We do know that that it was planned. We do know that, oh, I, I should mention the letters too, of course. It is possible that the reason that Dobby has the letters is that Lucius Malfoy was somehow sequestering Harry's mail himself. And Dobby, rather than returning those letters, rather than continuing those letters, rather because it is clearly part of Dobby's plan, not Malfoy's plan, that Harry Potter not return to Hogwarts. Therefore, it may be the case that Malfoy believes that he is reading Harry's mail to get a sense of when Harry will go to Diagon Alley, and then passes the letters back to Dobby for delivery, or however that's supposed to work. I think that by, by interpreting Malfoy's plan as a plan directed, targeted at Potter himself, we do some really interesting things to the structure of the book. We absolutely explain some previously inexplicable things, but we also tighten up many of our lines of conflict. Ginny seems completely inessential. Why would she be targeted? Even if we were going after the Weasleys, why would we target Ginny? Surely Percy would have that much more authority, that much more capability within the school. He would be a much more devastating bearer of Tom Riddle's diary. So there are all of these unanswered questions, but for me... I don't know. What do you guys think? What do you think? <laughs> We're seeing here. Okay. Oh, Katie's dropped that. Good. Katie's going to catch the theory in the podcast. That's going to be fine. Yes. Spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. Sydney says he'd know what the diary is because of the effect it has on the person that possesses it. I think it is clear that he knows. He doesn't know the ultimate nature of the diary, which we'll talk about many, many years from now, I suppose. Um, he doesn't know the ultimate nature of the diary, but he does know that it will have the desired effect. He does, it would seem, understand that the Chamber of Secrets will be opened as a result of the diary being in the possession of a Hogwarts student. We may even speculate that, that Tom Riddle and Lucius Malfoy themselves have had some kind of personal contact that, that Malfoy has used the diary. We do know that it was left in his care, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Andrea says, I've always assumed the original target was Harry, so I'm right with you. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad to know I'm not the only one who thinks this. That's good. Um, Stephanie says, maybe Ginny is the kid most likely not to talk to an adult about the diary. Well, see here, we're in boarding school story territory. None of the kids are going to talk to an adult about the diary. None of the kids are going to talk to adults, period. If Malfoy is in any way aware of the mechanics of... of of how these stories work from, from the inside, then he would know that that is, that is true. If he's in any way genre aware, he would know that that is true. I mean, we also have to dodge the question of why doesn't he just give it to his own son? What is his ultimate game plan? What does he think is actually going to, to happen? Is the bearer of the journal eventually going to be completely overtaken by Tom Riddle? If that's true, that would absolutely, definitively be a threat to Harry's life. That would absolutely motivate Dobby. So that's another that's another possibility. Oh, yes, no, Malix corrects me there, I think, I think unintentionally, but but very acutely there in the YouTube chat. Malix corrects me. Hermione would talk to an adult. Yes. Don't deliver the evil journal of evil into the possession of, of Hermione. Yes. Yes. Uh, E.R. Lamp says, maybe Harry was intended and Lucius changed his mind at the last moment to pick Ginny instead. That's absolutely one possibility. I think there are two possibilities for delivering the diary into, into Ginny's possession. One is that he changes his mind at the last moment and, and, and uh, finding the, the Weasleys in, in the bookstore decides to simply choose Ginny as a vulnerable target. The other is that he does actually pass the diary to Harry via Gilderoy Lockhart, and when Harry gives all of his books to Jenny, which he also conspicuously places in her cauldron, 
that may be the, the, the vector to, it may be the case that Harry actually unintentionally gave the book to, uh, to Ginny. Yeah. That's speculation. Yeah. Good. Yes, yes. Uh, Film Stories Code here in the YouTube chat says, if the target is Harry, then Lucius is avenging his former master. If the Weasleys are the target, it's a blood feud. Exactly. Good. Yeah. And Andre says, yes, if Ginny were found out to have opened the chamber, it would seriously undermine his muggle protection acts. That's absolutely true. But even then, why target Ginny, I guess, is my question. I'm not sure why Ginny would be the more viable target than, than Ron or Fred or George or Percy. Percy is obviously the standout there. Um, which is, I mean, in part what we're supposed to think, right? We're supposed to think that there's something wrong with Percy throughout the book because he's, he's being secretive all the time. And it turns out, of course, that that's simply his girlfriend. But as, as a potential culprit, Percy's actually an interesting and compelling one. So I, I can see that. Yeah. Good. All right. I really need to wrap this up because I'm afraid I have run far, far longer than, than I meant to. Um, yeah, Sydney says, uh, I definitely don't think he knows about the Horcruxes, but I do think he noticed the side effects of being close to the diary. He he pretty definitively, I think, doesn't know that that the riddle uh, that the riddle diary is more than it seems to be. I don't think he understands the mechanics of the Horcruxes at that point. It's it's really tough to, to backfill an explanation for his actions, uh, for Malfoy I'm talking about here. It's really difficult to backfill an explanation for his actions if he is aware of the nature of the Horcruxes when he 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 passes the, the journal on to Jenny. Yeah. Good. All right, let's wrap this up. Guys, thank you so much. I, I'm hoping that I will hear from you all via email, via Twitter, uh, over on the StoryWonk forum. I'm hoping that I'll hear from you all about this, this little pet theory of mine and, uh, and see what you guys think. All right. <laughs> Andre asks, next week we will figure out if one of Don Summer's diaries was the Riddle Diary. The use of that... There must be a course somewhere. There must be a, 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 an academic treatise somewhere about the uses of, of journals and diaries in particularly YA-oriented fiction. I have never known a teenager in my life to consistently keep a diary or a journal. And yet all the time in fiction that happens. It's such a useful narrative device. Yeah. All right. I have to wrap this up, you guys. Thank you all so much for, for stopping by today. Thank you all so much for keeping me company. Thank you all so much for reading these chapters. I hope you will be able to join me next week, chapters six to eight at 9 p.m. Eastern next week. In the meantime, you can reach me podcast at, e at storywonk.com. Podcast at email.com will not probably work, I should tell you. It has apparently been a long afternoon here. Podcast at storywonk.com or you can find me on Twitter at paperbullets for my personal account or at storywonk if you want to keep up with the updates from the site. Or of course, as I've said before, and we'll say again, you can head on over to the Storywonk forum. That's forum.storywonk.com. Guys, thank you so much for hanging out with me. I will talk to you all next week. Until then, take care.